I'll be reading this morning from Revelation chapter 20. Two portions here. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their, upon their foreheads and upon their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him upon him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'll pray. Lord, I thank you um, for the, your word and for all that you have made known to us. We, you haven't answered every question in detail, but you've given us enough, God, to know and to believe. And I pray that our hearts would be just moved again, Lord, to, to believe in you and to accept in faith what you've said and to rest, God, in what you've revealed and what you have yet to reveal. That our confidence would be unshaken as it is placed in you and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking um, the last number of weeks at the statement of faith for Bernie Bible Church um, and for the Evangelical Free Church of America. And we're on the last statement now, which has to do with the eternal state. What happens after we die? Very, very important question. As I noted, I think it was last week that the three um, age-old questions that everyone um, should face is where have we come from, why are we here, and where are we going? And this last statement deals with the third question of where are we going? It's important to be clear and sure on this. There's a, um, I used to read far side cartoons years ago, and I may be getting this one wrong because my memory is failing. But as I recall in the far side um, cartoon, there was a dog in the family car, and the husband and wife are about to take the dog to the vet. And the dog is, is talking through the car window to his friend out on the lawn, and he's all excited, the dog in the car, and he goes, today's the day I get to go to the vet and get tutored. <laughs> and, and, and the friend in the yard is looking at him going, no, no, it's not tutored, buddy, it's neutered. Um, that dog was in it for a rude awakening when he got to the vet and realized it's not what he thought. It's a funny story, but when it comes to our eternal destiny, I would hope that no one would be in for a rude awakening, that we would know absolutely for sure where we are headed, because we can know. The Bible has spoken very, very clearly to these things. So this statement of faith says, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. That's the first part of it. Of the believer to everlasting blessedness and joy with the Lord. And of the unbeliever to judgment and everlasting conscious punishment. So this is not 
hard to understand. It is uncomfortable, perhaps. It's not something that maybe we would want to hear. But it is one or the other. There is a resurrection coming. As I've just read from Revelation 20, all will be raised. There will be a resurrection of those who know Christ, a resurrection unto life, that is the first resurrection, and then there will be a second resurrection for those who don't know Christ. The one is a resurrection to spend all of eternity with God, and the other is a resurrection to spend all of eternity in separation from God. It's as simple as that. We believe this article says, it starts out, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. Resurrection is the only biblical answer to the question of what happens after death. And the Bible, as I've said, is not ambiguous about this. There is only one possibility of what happens after we die. And the Bible says, we will be raised. I have often said in the various funerals that I've um, officiated that the three logical possibilities are resurrection, annihilation, and reincarnation. But two of the three have absolutely no evidence to support them. So it is a major leap of faith to believe in either annihilation or reincarnation because there's simply no evidence. It is wishful thinking. That's all it is. But with the resurrection, there is historical proof, and that being the empty tomb of Jesus. Well, you might say, well, there's a lot of people that believe that, um, that don't even believe there's an afterlife of any kind, which is, gets toward the annihilation view. But it's interesting that, as far as I can tell, all religions believe in an afterlife. The early Egyptians did. The Babylonians did. Brahmanism does. Hinduism does. Buddhism does. Confucianism does. Islam does. The American Indian. All of these religions say there is an afterlife. Now they don't all say that we, there is a resurrection. But they all say Something happens after you die, and it is not annihilation. The fact that all religions speak of something that happens after we die, that this is not all there is, there is something more, tells us that God's word is true when in Ecclesiastes Solomon writes and says, eternity is in their hearts. Every man, woman, boy, and girl has this sense in him that this is not all there is. Eternity is in our hearts. Everybody. That's why the question is there. What happens after this? That very question testifies that eternity is in our hearts. We know that this should not be all that there is. But Ecclesiastes also says there is insanity in their hearts. <laughs> Think about that. Eternity is in our hearts. It doesn't say eternal life. That's a separate issue. A consciousness of eternity is in all of our hearts. But the insanity is that we would all know that there is something beyond this life. And then fail to open up our Bibles and read what the something is. That is insanity. When the answer has been given, and we know that the Word of God says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, and we ignore this? When we know that the proof in history of an empty tomb tells us what is next? That is insanity to just try to suppress the truth, the voice of eternity that is in us and ignore it and then step from this life into eternity unprepared. Insanity. Not everyone believes in a resurrection or heaven or hell. 
I get it. Many people that would say, well, maybe we are raised, but I still don't believe in a heaven or a hell. It's just not, it's not logical. It's not scientific. One theologian I came across, he, he wrote and said, science, with its belief in the indestructibility of matter and conservation of energy, cannot say that the Christian belief is unreasonable. Isn't that good? Scientists say matter is indestructible and energy is always present. It never goes away. And so that would say that the Christian belief in the resurrection is not unreasonable. He goes on and says, In philosophy, with its recognition of the inequities of life, cannot well avoid postulating a life after death when the wrongs of this life will be righted. There is something after this life, and it is eternity. Bodily, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. By bodily, we mean that this physical body will be raised from the dead. Yes, the entire person is raised. When we die, your immaterial part, your soul, your spirit goes immediately into eternity, either to be with the Lord or to be separated from Him for all of eternity. Your body goes to the grave. But the day is going to come when God will raise the bodies of everyone who has ever lived. This is not to say that you will have a time in your experience when you will be without a body. That time between when you die and when the body is raised. There's no parenthesis here where you will be without a body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 3, when Paul is talking about what happens when we die, he says, we will not be found naked. And he's talking about the body being put away. We are separated from the body, but he says, but don't think you're going to be found naked. So there's a mystery here that God hasn't given us all the details, but it seems clear enough that when we die you will be given a temporary body. That will be your, your clothing, as it were, so that you are not found naked, found without a body, until the time that the physical body is raised. I believe the reason for this is because God has constituted us as human beings made in His image to be body, soul, and spirit. And so if there's ever a moment when you do not have a body, you are not human. You are less than what God created you to be. And so God is not going to let that happen. You will always be a human being made in the image of God. And so even in that time between death and when the body is raised, you will not be found naked, but you will be clothed. Clothed with a temporary body until the body is raised in its glorified state. So the entire person will exist forever, either with the Lord or separated from Him. The resurrected body will be different than the present body, but it's the same body. That shouldn't be, again, something that is a stumbling block. It shouldn't keep us from believing. Um, if you ever look at your baby pictures, um, you are not the same as what you were. None of us are. I'll never forget, I had a baby picture on my um, dresser mirror, and one time my mom was at the house, and no, my, not my mom, my brother, and, um, and my brother looks and he goes, why do you have my baby picture on your dresser mirror? And I said, that, that's not you, that's me. And he goes, no, that is me. And so we had to ask my mom. I said, mom, who is this? She wasn't quite sure. <laughs> But she told me it was my brother. And I go, well, it used to be me. You told me it was me at one time. So that picture's gone. But it's the, it's the body, same body, but it has changed. In our glorified body, Paul says, same body, but it will change. The perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. Meaning we will never die, we'll never get sick, we won't age, 
Our body, glorified body, will be like Christ. What a wonderful thing. We don't know much about the resurrected body of the unbeliever, but we can assume it is very much the same. We, don't, we know that both the believer and the unbeliever will have an eternal body that will never cease to exist. Now the second part of this 12th article, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, of the believer to everlasting blessedness and joy with the Lord. You might just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the key passages that talks about um, the eternals, well, what happens to us after we die. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says, Therefore, always being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And then he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So let me just make some observations here. Believers will always be present with the Lord. You've probably heard the doctrine of purgatory. It did not come from the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible that hints of a time when you would be separated from the Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, to be absent from this body is to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. There is no holding place. There is no time when you have to wait there's no waiting room before you go to be with the Lord. It is immediately in the presence of the Lord. One of my most memorable experiences was to go to the hospital room of a dear saint who was about to pass on to be with the Lord. And as I walked in the room, she was surrounded by her family, all of whom knew the Lord. And, and it was obvious she was soon going to leave here to be with Jesus. And so I said, I'm so sorry. I'll come back in another time. And the family insisted that I stay. Um, they, they said, you're like family to us. We want you to be here. And so I was at the bedside when she took her last breath. Tears, but also joy. And her husband bent over her, lifeless body, kissed her on the forehead, and said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Her last breath here, her first breath with Jesus. Wow. Never forgotten that. And that is our strong confidence as those who have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation. I'm not, not worried about a purgatory. I'm not worried about whether I've been good enough whether I've done enough, my confidence is simply in Jesus. Jesus paid for my sin. And Jesus has offered me life. And all I've said is thank you. And on the basis of just by faith, in thanksgiving, receiving what he has offered, the Bible says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. What a gift. We know from this passage that believers will face what we call the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And we will have our works, our deeds, our thoughts, our motives will all be judged, but not us. And scripture is clear on that point as well. John 5, 24, Jesus says that those who place their faith in him pass out of death and out of judgment, and they are never judged. We have been judged in Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus for salvation, our judgment falls upon Jesus. And so in that sense, we have already been judged. 
So now what's happening is God is going to look at everything we've ever said, done, thought, or motives that we had. And this is not so that we would be punished, but rather that we might be rewarded. This is for reward. And the only thing, by the way, that's ever going to be rewarded is what was done in faith. Because whatever is not of faith is sin. And so all God's looking for is that we would live our lives in dependence upon the one who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us that he might give his life to us, that he might live his life through us. And so as I've trusted in him for salvation, I also trust in him to live his life in and through me. And that is what will be rewarded. I like to think this is why nobody's going to boast in their reward. Because we'll only be rewarded for what Jesus did. So how can I boast about what he did? And so he says, trust me, the one who gave his life for you. Trust me. And in that trust, we are rewarded. And that's what he's going to be evaluating. Was that action, Charlie, that morning you stood up and talked about eternal state. Was that an act of dependence? Were you trusting me? Or did you do that in your own energy, in your own strength, your own flesh? Because you can preach a sermon and it not have anything to do with Christ living his life through you. We know that there is the potential of suffering loss at this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks of this and says that everything is going to be tested by fire. And what is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up and we shall suffer loss. And so it's going to be grievous to stand before God and realize all that I needed to do to be rewarded and for him to be praised was for me to trust him. That's all he's looking for. Just to trust him. And yet I didn't. And, this, and the, this, the, we will suffer loss. And I think God uses that word because there's going to be a suffering that takes place. It's going to be painful to realize that he wasn't looking for my works. He wasn't looking for my performance. He wasn't looking for commitment or passion or zeal. He was looking for faith. And that's all. We also know that in the eternal state, where we are heading, there will be no death and there will be no sorrow. That's not immediately when we go to heaven. But rather, that's after the millennium. If you'll flip over your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. After the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, where all those who died not having believed in Christ are judged, then there is a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is <coughs> no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Wow. Won't that be wonderful? No mourning, no crying, no suffering, no death. Just the joy of the Lord for all of eternity. We can't begin to imagine what that will be like. There'll be nothing to grieve over. Nothing to be sad about. Nothing to suffer. But that is not our experience when we first die. But it'll be a thousand years after the millennium. And we don't even know for sure when the millennium will begin. 
It could happen. Um, if the rapture were to happen today, then the tribulation would begin very shortly afterwards. That will last for seven years. And so at the earliest, we're a thousand and seven years away from this time. At the earliest. But we know that's what God has told us is going to happen. Does that mean that people now in heaven are, are sad? Yes. Are they grieved? Yes. We see this in the book of Revelation when we have the martyrs, the souls of all those who are beheaded for the testimony of Christ, who are crying out to the Lord and saying, How long, O Lord? How much longer? And so there seems to be, there is some sense that those who have departed and gone to be with the Lord are, have some consciousness, some awareness of what is going on on earth. That doesn't mean we talk to those people or we pray to those people. God forbid, and he does forbid. We do not talk to the dead. We do not pray to people who have already departed. We are exhorted to pray only to God and no one else. We know that we will spend all of eternity on the new earth. Heaven is not where we spend eternity. Hope that doesn't disappoint you. You will spend eternity on a new earth. I like that idea. I can get my mind a little bit around a new earth. It'll have mountains and valleys and rivers and clouds, all kinds of wildlife, but no stickers. <laughs> Be able to run through the grass in Texas and not get stickers in your feet. No thorns, no cats. <laughs> Be a wonderful place. The next part and last part of this Article 12 of the unbeliever to judgment and everlasting conscious punishment. We need to be clear that the unbeliever is not necessarily a person who did not believe in God. That's not what we mean by unbeliever. We're not talking about the atheist. We're talking about the person who never believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They trusted in something else to save them. Maybe it was the love of God. Maybe it was the grace of God that they were trusting in. But they did not trust in the person of Jesus Christ to grant them eternal life. Maybe they were trusting in a prayer that they prayed as a child. Maybe they were trusting in their long heritage of coming from Christian homes. Maybe they trusted in their good works. Maybe they trusted in their church attendance. There's going to be a lot of people who feared God, who prayed to God, who will not be with God because they were trusting in something other than Jesus Christ. We had a woman in the church whose dad passed away. I'd never met him. And she was very frank with me. And she says, there is no indication that my dad ever gave his life to Christ, ever received Christ. But I don't know for sure. But he never gave us any indication that he was saved. And she says, he was a Mason. And when you do the funeral, all the Masons in town will be there. And she said, and my brother is a Satan worshiper. He is a warlock, and he will be there as well. Give him the gospel. I love doing that. And so I did. And that funeral was held here in town. And sure enough, um, in the, where we had, wasn't here where we are now, but in the place where we met, the first two rows all these old Masons, 70, 80, 90 years old, these old men. 
bunch of sourpusses, I'm telling you. Man, alive. Just grumpy, sour men. And then the brother, Satan worshiper, sitting halfway back. What do you say in a situation like that? I had a, a, some interaction with the widow, sweetest lady you ever met. And they had been married something like 45, 50 years. And this just sweet, sweet lady. And so as I did this gentleman's funeral, I said, you know, I've never met this man. I don't know whether he ever placed his faith in Christ or not. But I know he couldn't have been too bad of a man and have that sweet of a wife. Because if he was really just a terrible man and been married to a terrible man for 50 years, you wouldn't be that sweet. (laughs) But I said, even if he was a good man, it's not enough. Because our righteousness is filthy rags. And it is not enough to be good. Because no one can truly be good without God. So I don't know where this man is. But I know this. If his confidence was in his goodness and not in Jesus Christ, he is not with the Lord. All unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11, 15 that we read this morning speaks of that. Every single person. And they will all experience the same fate as the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the demons. And that is the lake of fire. Hell is where the unbeliever first goes after death. That is not where he spends eternity. And even hell... I have to be careful about that word because the Bible gives more than one word for where people go after they die. There are actually four Greek words. There is Hades, which is the equivalent of Sheol in the Old Testament. So all through the Old Testament, whenever somebody died, they went to Sheol. New Testament, you don't see Sheol mentioned. You hear Hades mentioned. We're not sure what Sheol or Hades were. Lots of opinions, lots of things have been written about it. Many of those verses that refer to Sheol or Hades can mean simply the grave. And it's not talking about a place of conscious torment. It's just the grave. Many of those verses. But some of those verses seem to speak of a place of conscious torment after we die. Then there's the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna is probably the better word for what we use the word for hell. These are the two places that the New Testament mentions that unbelievers go when they die. Hades or Gehenna. But then there's two other places. There's um, Tartarus. Mentioned only one time in the Bible, 2 Peter 2.4. And this was a place, really, really bad place, worse than hell. Hades, Gehenna, whatever you want to call it. And this was a place reserved for certain demons. They go to Tartarus. And then there's the abyss. The abyss is another place. This seems to be a place that's maybe reserved for demons as well. This is where Satan is held during the thousand-year millennium. He is cast into the abyss, and he's held there until he's released at the end of that millennium. But this is what we know. Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, and and the abyss are all temporary, intermediate states. They are not eternal states. They will all be cast and their contents into the lake of fire. So the final state for the unbeliever would be the lake of fire. As the final state for the believer is the new earth. We know that hell 
and the lake of fire are places of conscious eternal punishment and destruction. There is never any mention of escape, of a second chance, or after death conversion in Scripture. So let me say that again. Because so many people put their confidence in the hope that there would be a second chance after we die. There is no mention in Scripture of any escape. It is a final state of a second chance or of the possibility of an after-death conversion. None whatsoever. So to place your hope on that, again, would be to hope in something that has no evidence, none at all. It's a tremendous risk. As I've said, there is no mention in the Bible of purgatory, a place of purging with fire until you have your sins purged and then you can come into the presence of Jesus. Nothing in the Bible speaks of that. And it is flatly contradictory to Jesus being the one who has paid for all of our sin. There's nothing to be purged from. We've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. A key passage in understanding what happens to people at least until Christ's resurrection when they died is Luke 16, 19 to 31, where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who had all of his joys and pleasures during this life. And then Lazarus, just a poor beggar, full of sores that the dogs would come and lick his wounds. And when they died, one went to Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. And the other went to a place of conscious torment. There's a lot of debate over whether that was a parable or whether it was it's an actual story. We don't know. No one can say for sure. But even parables are, are true to life. I don't know that we can press every detail of that story. Um, some of it does not seem to be possible. But on the whole, there's much to glean from it. One of the key points to glean from it is those that are there in that place of conscious torment, they know they deserve to be there. And they know there is no escape. That man is not saying, that rich man, let me out of here. He's not saying, I don't deserve this. What he is saying is, I need relief. Would somebody, would you have Abraham, would you have Lazarus bring me some water? Abraham says, not possible. They want relief but they are not complaining about they're somewhere where they don't deserve. They know it is a fixed state and they deserve to be there. Some other related truths on these things. The Bible mentions eternal life and eternal punishment in the same verse. We looked at this when we were going through Matthew a while back. Matthew 25, 46 in the same sentence mentions eternal life and eternal punishment. If you can believe in eternal life, then you should also believe in eternal punishment. There is nothing in the Bible that mentions that those who spend their eternity in separation from God will spend it with their friends. We've all heard that, haven't we? Well, if I have to go to hell, at least I'll be there with my friends. Wishful thinking. There's no reason for us to think that there'll be any fellowship, any communion of any kind while separated from God. I think it would be more logical, more biblical to say that it'll be a place of utter isolation. Because unity and fellowship is an expression of what is true of God. And we're talking about being separated from God. Much more likely that it'll be a place of darkness and isolation than that it would be a place of light and fellowship. There is nothing in Scripture that says that it is a place, hell, Hades, lake of fire. There's nothing in Scripture that says that it will be ruled over by Satan. 
I don't know where we really got that thought. Nothing the Bible says that Satan's going to be cracking the whip and torturing us. It's not in the Bible. But the Bible does say that just as there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven, there will be varying degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. Each person is to be judged according to what he has done. Look again at Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Now the sea here is probably not the literal sea. Sea in the book of Revelation, but not just Revelation, but especially here, is usually a reference to lost humanity or humanity um, apart from God. The nations sometimes, just the sea, the Gentile nations. And they all give up their dead, and then it says, and they are each, every one of them is judged according to their deeds. Now what is the point of doing that if there is no degrees of punishment? But there are degrees of punishment. That's what is being implied here. And this isn't the only verse to go to that speaks of this. Why would God do that? Well, because God is just. And so no two people are going to experience the lake of fire in the same way. Because no two people sinned in the same way. People have varying degrees of knowledge concerning Jesus. Some no knowledge whatsoever. Others with great knowledge of Jesus. That's going to be the major contributor in their judgment. What did they do with the knowledge they had of Jesus? And then there's going to be many other things that will contribute to how they are punished for all of eternity. And no one will be able to say, I am getting more than what I deserve. God, in his justice, will judge each person exactly as he deserves. With all that I've been saying this morning about heaven and hell, the new earth, and the lake of fire, one thing that cannot be disputed, Jesus believed in hell. And if you don't, you will be gravely, gravely mistaken. Of all the New Testament writers of all those that are, that are mentioned in the Bible, no one spoke of hell more than Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, the one who is love. And when he spoke of it, he spoke of it as being final, terrible, and eternal. In addition to Jesus... Every single New Testament writer speaks of hell. I don't know how you could read your Bible and say that it is not real. Paul, James, John, Peter, Jude, and the author of Hebrews all speak of a literal hell. And eventually, we know from Revelation, the lake of fire. How can a just God punish people for all eternity? After all, we only live 70, 80, 90 years. And yet you will be punished for all eternity? How is that justice? I have two responses to that question, and it's a good question. One is that when we die both believer and unbeliever, our character is at that moment fixed for eternity. The lost are not going to improve morally. They will be eternally, morally bankrupt, morally corrupt. They are not going to improve. They will live for eternity as morally corrupt people as those who have sinned against their God. Their character does not change, and they live for eternity. Therefore, it is just that they suffer for eternity. 
because they live for eternity. They will be under the constant judgment of God. They do not have eternal life. And so to not have eternal life and to live for eternity is to suffer. But there's also the truth that God himself is eternal. I've talked about this at other times. And to sin against God is to sin, is, to ha- is your sin is going to impact him eternally. We can't hardly get our minds around it, but it shouldn't again be that difficult because we are people who have been sinned against. Every one of us have been sinned against. And you know that when you are sinned against, it is not possible for the person to make an apology good enough to undo what they've done. This is why if you are waiting for an apology to forgive, you will never forgive. It can't be undone. It's like when my father-in-law burned down the family farm, burned the house down, burned the barn down at three years old. It's not possible for him to undo what he has done. It's too big. And my sin is too big for a mere apology to erase. The only thing that can take care of my sin is the blood of Jesus Christ, and that shows us the enormity of what we've done. Sin is a much bigger deal than we comprehend. And I know this, the righteous, just God will do what is right and just. And if it were not right, not just, to punish sinners for all of eternity, my God would not do it. Well, we've spent several weeks now on these 12 statements. I hope it's been profitable. It has been for me. Why? Well, we are exhorted in Scripture to not depart from the faith. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, Retain the standard of sound words and guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to us. Hebrews has five very, very strong warnings, and they just get stronger as you go through the progression of them. And the first one has to do with drifting from the word. And in that warning, the writer says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. We're living in a time when people think that certainty is pride. And that we really can't be sure of anything. You can't even be sure of your own sexuality. It's crazy times. But the Bible is constantly imploring us to believe what we know to be true. In the little five chapters of 1 John, the word know is repeated 40 times. We can know. And what I've been talking about for these weeks is what we can know. There should be no doubt. The Christian life is experiential. We know Christ in our experience. We know him personally. But our faith is not built on experience. It is built on the solid rock of God's word. And again, this is why we have a statement of faith and why it's important to look at it. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus said that he is the rock. And the one who takes his words and takes them to heart and and believes what he has said, it's like he's building his house on a solid rock. And when the storm comes, he will remain steadfast. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, The time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine." But wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That has always been the propensity of man. We'd rather believe what we want to believe than believe what God's word says. So I want to just thank you as a congregation um, for listening and, and giving me such good, positive um, 
reinforcement over these weeks when we've been talking about doctrine. We need doctrine. Doctrine's a good thing. There have been several times in my life I've heard people stand up and say, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus. Goodness gracious. Where do you begin in responding to that? The time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. I pray we never depart from sound doctrine. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the things that you have so clearly given us in your word. And we know that you are truthful and good and just and right in all that you do. And our faith in you will never be uh, misplaced. And we will not be disappointed by trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. I pray, God, that any that have heard this morning and have not yet believed in Jesus, that if nothing else, God, that you would stir their hearts to contemplate their own mortality and to think on what comes next. I pray that you would draw their hearts to yourself, to your word, and that they would see that it is reasonable to place our faith in the one who has proven himself trustworthy, one in whom there is no lie and there is no deceit in him. Thank you, God, again, that your word says that those who trust in you will not be disappointed. And I thank you, Father, that absent from this body is to be present with you. And we do prefer to be with you. But we pray until that time that we would remain true to you, that we would not depart from sound doctrine, that we would heed what you have said, even when it brings suffering and persecution to us. In Jesus' name, amen.